0: Welcome to Direction Correct, I'm podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Nicole Lettich.
1: Thanks to our sponsors Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting your privacy using workplace analytics with our partners Worklytics. Have you seen those like ghost towns in China where they build like whole towns and nobody lives in them?
0: Oh like a factory town and like the factory no, goes no. down. Like
1: they'll go like I remember I think one they built like it was like Paris. Like they built Paris in China, but nobody lives there.
0: <laughs> no, I've not seen this. That sounds amazing. You should look
1: into like seriously go Google it or something yeah, because there's like go- there's like ghost towns where they build like these full cities and nobody lives in them.
0: Like wait, they they tried to recreate Paris, like Eiffel Tower and the. I Arctic think they've turnaround.
1: recreated a lot of stuff, not just Paris. Like they've recreated a lot of like major um, things. I it's kind of like Vegas, you know, but empty.
0: Oh God! China's ghost cities offer a look into a huge housing crisis. It's wild. <laughs> Seven ghost towns in China. Let's see. I'm, I need to see like one in Paris. Oh yeah, it came up. China's strange city of Paris. Oh my gosh!
1: See, isn't that crazy? That's not in Europe.
0: Why though? Like, <laughs> well, I guess like Disney Paris or something. Like, hi oh. hey, Nicole. Hi. Nicole. How's it going?
2: how's it going
0: you caught us uh, looking at uh, china ghost cities
2: oh that sounds creepy <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah
1: i mean imagine going to a town and it being completely empty that would be very creepy
2: yeah giving me zombie movie vibes just- Why?
0: why are they ghost towns though i didn't get a chance to actually read the article like why would they build these and they go away cole
2: Uh, i mean i
1: don't really know but uh i i presume that they kind of took the field of dream strategy if you build it they will come (laughs) and uh they didn't come (laughs) so so now they're empty
0: sounds like the podcast right just build it and see if people actually listen
1: yeah no kidding (laughs) (laughs) this this is very strange i don't i don't have a good ghost town in china segue
0: built in (laughs) Like, have have y'all ever been to, like, the, like, Old West ghost towns, or anything like that? Mm-mm.
2: No, Maybe, my you know. husband would love to. He is obsessed with things like that. Like, he's one of those people who watches, if you ever see the History Channel at night.
1: Ancient where- Aliens. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oak, what's that other one? It's, like, Oak something, Oak Island. Yes. Oak.
0: Oh, yes, yes.
2: Yes. Yeah, he, like, shoes us out of the room. He's like, all right, what's uh.
1: I don't know what oak island is what is oak island
2: they're looking for something related to it's like an ancient treasure that's somehow related to something in the bible that somehow ended up on this island so they've been digging for years but haven't found it yet sure it's
1: i'm just gonna fast forward to the end
0: they're not gonna find it
2: ever exactly every every (laughs) season every season there's almost a breakthrough
0: (laughs) oh you gotta you gotta leave on the cliffhanger right (laughs) It's it's amazing, like the History Channel, like the Learning Channel, all this, stu- this stuff. Like twenty years ago, it used to be like actual, like you learn about, <laughs> you yeah. know, ancient yeah. Romans or this sort of thing. Now it's ancient aliens and yeah. uh, bringing up twelve <laughs> children in one house or whatever it is. Yeah,
1: or yeah, people fixing cars. Like yeah, how yeah, many yeah. of these shows turned into people fixing cars? It's like that was never the point. And of course, you know, I mean, we've <laughs> talked about MTV doesn't play music anymore, and it's about yeah, you know, I don't even know what they put on there anymore. Does MTV even exist? It I does. So
2: I, I feel does. like that, uh, like I know wilding out and ridiculousness are on there. That's like all I know about modern MTV. That's it.
0: <laughs> uh, apparently, like, ridiculousness is on all the time. And I, I, I will fall into the ridiculousness trap of okay. like watching it for eh, longer than I should, honestly. But there was like some sort of study that was done internally at MTV that essentially showed that this show for whatever reason will attract men from like age 25 to 49 for the longest period of time like it doesn't attract gen z doesn't attract obviously older adults but uh for whatever reason it attracts that group and it sustains attention
2: but that's like impractical jokers right have you heard of that oh yeah oh yeah yeah. like that's like also on all the time because people (laughs) would just sit there and watch it same demographic no (laughs) doubt
1: Yeah, it's clearly working, Scott. It's working on you. So <laughs> totally,
0: I, I was raised on TV, though. Like that's my that's my go-to. That's my blankie.
1: Oh, uh, a latchkey kid, kind of. Uh, oh yeah, Nicole. Let me let me introduce you really quickly. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about people analytics for once. Um, <laughs> so Nicole Letich is uh, the director of people analytics and insights at NASDAQ. She's held other similar roles at companies like NRG Energy. Uh, U.S. Development, Citigroup, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, she's an avid Python coder and pursuing her master's in people analytics from the University of Hull. Nicole, I'm really glad for you to join us today and uh, one of the things that I know that you focus a lot on is your own personal development but I think you had a question for us related to personal development as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I know that in our careers, we're really juggling a lot of things. Things change very quickly in people analytics. So how do you find that balance to manage your own personal development plus your numerous competing priorities?
0: Oh, gosh. I don't know if I have effectively balanced it, really. like I, I'll i say that like a large portion of my life is just kind of wrapped up in people analytics because I enjoy it, right? I think we're all kind of attracted to careers we enjoy, so... I enjoy like learning new things about you know, just the articles that you read as well as like new like Python R sort of uh, scripting, this sort of stuff, so you get like wrapped up in eh, sometimes things that don't matter, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, man, I don't know, like uh, balancing it out. I, I do need I do need hobbies. I, I need hobbies. I, I would say this podcast is a hobby, but not really.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's become a little bit more. I think we thought it would be a hobby. But yeah. it, it's, it's kind of more than that. I will say I, I do attribute it to some of my own personal development. I read a lot more scientific related topics now because of this podcast than maybe I would mm-hmm. have otherwise. Um, but the honest answer is I, I don't think I do a lot of personal development. I would call it I do personal experimentation. So I just try stuff out and see what works and what doesn't work. And then I just try to keep going with the things that work. But uh, I mean, I used to spend a lot of time like trying to learn new tools and that kind of stuff. I really don't anymore. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, you know, play with my kids. That's personal development. (laughs) It's teaching me patience. Yeah, that's for sure. Or lack thereof. But yeah. Yeah. I used to play a lot more golf than I do right now. That's not working, but, you know, (laughs) life catches up with you.
0: I like like treating things like uh, New Year's resolutions where I'm going to try them out for a few days, like (laughs) Cole, and then drop them as soon as you just get bored of them.
1: Yeah, it's good. I actually learned that from uh, Tillman uh, because I tell people about like reading books. And he always would tell us, and this is Tillman Cheats, he's been a previous guest on the podcast and he was Scott and I advisor. He would say, read a book until you're not learning anything anymore and just put it down. So I almost never finished books anymore just because of that advice.
0: That's a good point. Like you can really reap most of the information like in the first three chapters. Then he's just like rehashed or kind of drawn out and a lot of books. Obviously yeah, it's
1: it's like one, two or three good chapters and then many, many examples of why what they said in the first three chapters <laughs> is important.
0: But yeah. it's, it's it's good to see you again, Nicole. Like uh, you, uh, we were at taureos together, what, uh, a few months ago at this point. Yeah. But like you gave like just absolutely fantastic presentation on psychometric network analysis. Cole shit on it when I brought it up so like I can't wait to I like did see.
1: not I totally did not
0: <laughs> I think it's absolutely revolutionary yeah. but like for, for people that don't know what it is can you just like kind of describe it in general terms and uh perhaps how y'all are using it
2: yeah absolutely So I find it really interesting. It's actually something that I learned in my master's program. So our program director, Igor Menendez, he was really kind of at the forefront of using this in HR. So he runs a psychometric and people analytics lab at the university. And there he actually did an analysis looking at thriving at work using psychometric network analysis. So what that means is instead of using organizational network analysis, where you're looking at the connections between people, this is really concerned with the connections between constructs or survey items. And so, it, like you said, it's really revolutionary because you're not really looking at those variables in isolation. It's how do those all work together? So mm-hmm. really cool stuff. Well, let me
1: let me dig into that a little bit. So what would be an example of practical uses of psychometric network analysis and what are kind of the above, uh, the add on additional insights that you would get that you wouldn't get if you hadn't used psychometric network analysis in the first place using this type of methodology?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So what I found is that when you're applying it to exit surveys, that's when it's really powerful we always hear when it comes to people leaving organizations, it's career development and compensation. But when you apply psychometric network analysis to your exit survey, you start to look at all of those different touch points within your organization, and you see what the different levers are that you can pull. So one of the things that I've noticed um, in one of the analysis that I have did is recognition was something that was huge. When you look at the different network metrics, it was the leading indicator when it came to strength belongingness, and closeness. So when you're when you think about recognition, you look at all of the studies out that are out there, and it really kind of makes sense because recognition is linked to higher levels of engagement. If you're not being recognized, then lower levels of engagement, which we know is related to attrition. Again, this just really supported some of the other research that's out there, but if I just looked at sort of the correlations, I wasn't getting that insight.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, all, all these attitudes that we have come from our own brain, right? So they're all sort of interrelated. They're they're uh, shaped by our experiences. They're shaped by you know what's going on. Uh, our own you know sort of idiosyncrasies, that sort of thing. So, like, when you look at a list of, say, item means, it's like, well, uh, pay satisfaction is 4.2, uh, manager satisfaction is 4.23, uh, you know, your coworkers is, you know, 3.9, whatever, and you're kind of left with, like, well, what is most important out of these, right? right. So, the, and the, but they're all they're all interrelated, right? So, because like that's that's our experience at the work. And I think the beauty of like psychometric network analysis or a causal attitude networks, as described in other literature, is that you can identify those with the highest touch points and the greatest connectivity to the other items or the other attitudes that we have. And therefore, if you attack one attitude. You can influence a bunch of attitudes at once. It's like a domino effect.
2: Exactly. A a
0: domino effect. It gives, it gives in like, if if you're like a young researcher out there, like this is a perfect sort of avenue to make waves very quickly uh, because it does provide you actionable insights to go after and attack these sort of issues. Because once again, like uh, what's the difference between like 4.2 and 4.1? What should we pursue? I don't know, but this provides an avenue.
2: Exactly. So, so what I like to look at it is, it, again, like to your point, it's telling you exactly what levers to pull, right? Exactly. So what is affecting recognition? And then that's where you know you have to prioritize some sort of intervention, and then that'll cascade out.
1: So here, here's my million-dollar question on psychometric network analysis is, you know, every so often there'll be like a new methodology that's introduced into kind of like the common statistics that social scientists use. Mm -hmm. And my rule of thumb is if that that methodology is going to stand the test of time, is does it start getting taught in grad school, and does it start to be showing up in, like, the basic DATS textbooks? So do you think that psychometric network analysis is going to start showing up in those ways? And if so, you know, are there common statistical packages that people should be, you know, downloading to use this, like... Practically speaking, how is this going to become a tool that stands the test of time? Or is it just going to go by the wayside in five years?
2: I think think it's going to stick around. So Sasha Epskamp, who is one of the leading researchers using this technique, he is a statistics professor, professor, I think, but he's at the University of Amsterdam. So he's currently running a summer school, or I think it might be a winter school, it's a seasonal school um, every year for people who are interested in this technique. And so it's really, if you start to look at the research, it's been exploding over the last few years. So I think it's definitely going to stand the test of time. Um, In terms of packages, I would say bootnet in R is one that I've used, trying to think of what I use for visualization. But there are a few key packages. Um, There's psychonetrics is another package that you can use in R as well that would create all of these different networks for you.
0: Probably like Q graph or something like that. What it, yeah. Exactly. To, to your point, yeah. It, it, these things should be taught in school because it does provide actual results. We can talk later about like how we don't use a lot of data-driven decisions, or is that it's not as data-driven as we want in a lot of our people analytics functions? But this does provide a means to actually get at these answers. Well,
1: Nicole, I was one of the things I was curious to talking to you about as well because I know this is one of the evolutions that you're going through at NASDAQ is the role that data governance plays and, and just maybe talk to us like, what is data governance? What is it good for? And, and how's it going for you at NASDAQ?
2: Yep, that's a great question. So that is something that I'm extremely passionate about is just a rigor around our data. So we all know that when you work in people analytics the data is not always the cleanest because a lot of it comes from manual processes. So there are little nuances in this type of data. So what I've been really focused on is leveraging technology to standardize our reporting, ensure data quality, and then also set up an environment where we can have continuous improvement. So for us, what that means is, we're starting to push some of our data into a data warehouse And this isn't, not to get into a buy versus build conversation, but one of the reasons that we're doing that is so that we can have alignment with our finance teams around what they're reporting out externally with what we're reporting out. So that's a key piece of it. The next piece is around that data quality. So having all of that data in the data warehouse, it gives us the ability to do two things. The first is to run defensive queries on our data. So if something's not right, then we can figure out what that is and then correct it and push that sort of up the stack and make sure that it gets corrected.
0: Defensive query?
2: That's what I like to call them, defensive queries. So it's catching those errors before they make it out to users. Okay. That's like literally my nightmare is when, you know, you get this doesn't look right. I'm like, OK, let me start reconciling. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, nightmare. So what I like to do is, you know, is have these defensive queries. Then we're also setting up processes um, internally where we just have standardized audit. So that's kind of our backstop. So if something happens to slip through or there's some sort of anomaly, you know, we're doing multiple checks and then you know, goals and stage is to start using machine learning to handle some of this. So are there certain data points that we can identify as being incorrect and then have those corrected in the system and then just get an audit log where we have someone review those?
1: So you've got these defensive queries, Nicole, you've got kind of problems that you're tackling, but with the, what I've usually framed this as is credibility problems right? If you're sharing the wrong data, if you have the wrong calculation, you have the wrong queries, you have, you know, your data definitions aren't correct, whatever it may be, how much time do you spend on trying to fix those type of issues just to maintain the team's credibility?
2: So my approach has been to sort of tackle things in phases. So the first thing is, let's get the basics right. Let's focus on headcount. So we know those reports are clean, good quality, so let's push push those out to users, make them available, sort of democratize them, we don't have to spend that much time on it. And then we're just kind of going through these various groups of reports. So it's really hard to quantify the time because some of these hygiene sort of queries have existed and we're just modifying them. And to your point, I like that you call it a credibility problem, and I agree with you. When you think about people analytics, I think a lot of people dive right into the analytics piece, but you have to remember you're dealing with these stakeholders, and you can't build strong relationships and have that credibility if you're sort really starting from a shaky foundation. So although it is time-consuming, I think it is a very important piece of work but at the same time, I kind of run things in parallel. So let's spend our time working on cleaning data, but that doesn't mean that we have to stop delivering insights. So we'll deliver insights with the data that we know is ready to ship.
0: Have you had difficulty actually just acquiring the data? I know I know it's a massive thing for a lot of organizations. We want to do you know these like crazy cool people analytics sort of things, machine learning, you know what have you But you know data availability is, a real issue. And we got these like, you know, laws in Europe and California, New York, Illinois coming up. H- how do folks navigate that? And h- how has NASDAQ navigated this sort of issues?
2: Yeah, I would say for us. I, so when I took on this role, I actually moved over to our people ops and tech team. So we're really kind of central to all of the people data that's coming in. So I think in this structure, having access to the data hasn't really been as difficult for me. And that's, I think, another benefit of the data warehouse, because Mm -hmm. we can also link in those financial measures as well, which I know can be a stumbling block for some people. So there really is um, a collaborative effort around making these data sets unified so we can get the most value out of them.
0: Quantitative data is one thing, but I know that you're also very, I don't know, hip, you're you're a master at the qualitative method. And the one thing you, you talked about was like this like repertory grid. And like I, I said, Cole, what the heck is that? And he said, I don't know. Let's ask Nicole that. <laughs> yeah, I said, <laughs> I don't know either.
2: What is yeah, so rep- this is like, this is, you know, honestly what I'm going to be writing my thesis on is using this repertory grid technique. So essentially it was developed by George Kelly. He was a psychologist in the 1950s. And essentially, he came up with personal construct theory, which says that we all have different ways of interpreting the world. Those are our personal constructs. And whenever we're presented with something new, we run that idea through our own personal filter and that develops, you know, is going to help us develop that response. So something that you might find thrilling, I might find terrifying, right? And it's just all based on those experiences.
0: Our uh, uh, psychological network. Psychological network analysis, right? All
2: coming together, and so what's cool about this technique is that it's a structured interview that elicits those constructs in the person's own words. So, for example, let's say we wanted to talk about companies. You know, what does it take to do people analytics well? So, I could say to each of you, I want you to think of three companies who are doing it well, three companies who are kind of mediocre, and three companies who aren't. Mm
0: -hmm. And so,
2: you would give me those that list of nine companies, and I take three people, three companies from that list and say, okay, well, what do two of these companies have in common that the third doesn't? And you might say one is, you know, doing people analytics at scale, one isn't, you know, one has the right org structure, one doesn't. And so you really come up with those different constructs in your own words. And then the nice part of this is that you go through all those constructs and you can compare them qualitatively. And also quantitatively, when you're looking at an individual grid, so you can run something like PCA to say, all right, well, how do these different constructs move together?
1: You know, the thing I, I love about you, Nicole, is in the past, this was a while ago, somebody called me like a people analytics hipster. I always know like about it. It's like, like really like niche type of topics. You've already introduced two that I've never explored (laughs) in terms of the repertory grid and then the psychometric network analysis. I'll flip the question you asked us earlier back on you. How do you find out about all this stuff and how are you focusing on your development and where are you finding all these niche topics? And maybe they're not niche. Maybe I'm just out of touch.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say when it comes to psychometric network analysis, I was introduced to that in my master's program. And then as for the repertory grid, I actually was introduced to that by Max Bloomberg. So oh, nice. oh,
1: friend of the pod and yes. classic the wild jackass. <laughs> we <laughs> called him the Renaissance man. Let's stick with that. The Renaissance man, Max Bloomberg.
2: Yes.
0: So wait, you're getting your master's at whole in, in England?
2: Yeah. So I'm doing it online, which I need to do as, as the mother of a small child. Yeah. The the travel
0: bills would get
2: (laughs) rather (laughs) exorbitant. Yeah. And the reason that I was actually drawn to that program was because of the psychometric network analysis. So. Max is over there too. He is. Yeah. I actually got to meet him uh, in real life for the first time this year. So
1: it was great. Oh my gosh. What was that like?
2: (laughs) Oh, it was great. It was just, it was so nice. You know, everything has been virtual. So, so nice to actually just have a chance to sit and talk to him. And, you know, I love my conversations with Max because they can just go on this very circuitous, just cover anything. So,
0: well, it is like kind of like back to you. Like, is there anything kind of an extension of what Cole just said? Like, is there anything in your past that like kind of led you to where you are? I don't want to get to like a nature versus nurture sort of argument here, but like, did you always have this sort of like uh, orientation towards, you know, finding new tools or, you know, like people analytics, like uh, looking after people or was it just something that you found in school and said, like, boy, this is the right path for me?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So when I, I've had sort of a very uh, meandering uh, career. So when I went to school, I was college, I was thinking to be a math major and then I fell in love with English literature. And so that's where I think I really started to blend the quantitative and the qualitative. It's about as
0: far apart as you can get, right? As you can
2: get. And I just kind of love that mix. And so, um, you know, after a while, I ended up you know, re- working in marketing analytics, ended up running my own business. And then that's where I felt like it really pieced everything together for me in terms yeah. of, you know, doing the analysis, but then also having to have face time with customers and sort of getting that qualitative feedback. And just making those connections was really what kind of pulled me into people analytics. I was like, oh, I'm using my, you know, employee metrics and it ties to my business outcomes and so that's when i kind of made the uh, switch to move into hr and you know just fell in love
1: well and it's not just quantitative and qualitative and just very niche topics i mean aren't you brushing up on languages right now i mean like i feel like that's like a big thing in your family do you want to talk about that at all
2: yeah it is so it's funny that we were you know earlier talking about sort of new year's resolutions So I was, um, you know, I had been studying French since high school. Then I kind of like pick it up and then drop it. And I've decided to revisit it. So I'm practicing French. My husband is also bilingual, so English and Spanish. So my son decided to kind of I guess he just ignored French and now he's learning Spanish and Hindi so it's pretty neat that we're all my son and I do Duolingo he is like very adamant that we do not lose our streak so you know if he forgets to practice (laughs) like he compels me to and then luckily for my husband he gets to um he gets to practice at work
0: plus you can like talk about uh you know what you're trying to accomplish at the house without the kid knowing right (laughs) like hey (laughs) no dessert exactly (laughs) Well, you want to move on to uh, the confusion matrix, Nicole? Are you ready to be confused? Sure, (laughs) let's do it. We're going to try something new with you. How do you feel about that?
2: Yeah, I'm
0: down. This is called uh, Pick Your Poison. Pick Your Poison. So we're going to give you two topics. You choose one, whichever one you want, and we'll uh, we'll try and banter about it. Okay, (laughs) if you could have a celebrity as a coworker, who would it be? Or what's the biggest misconception about your job?
2: Ooh, I want to go with the biggest misconception. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's do it. So I feel like the biggest misconception is that I'm just kind of sitting around coding all day when actually a good portion of the job is meeting with other people and getting feedback and understanding what's going on in their worlds. So it's not really sort of where you're isolated. (laughs) Like, I feel like to do people analytics well, you actually have to really put yourself out there a lot. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I, I've been calling this, I don't know where I put this recently. I wrote this into an article. It's like the biggest lie of people analytics is that we spend all of our time just doing analysis. And it's like, it's, it's very, I wouldn't say it's rare. It's just, it's not what you're spending over 50% of your time doing most days.
0: There are people that do it. There's like hardcore data scientists that are like really removed, but I I found that the most rewarding aspects of running your analysis is understanding the business understanding the challenges very well and like the implications of it because you could say like well group a has a higher mean than group b or whatever and this has you know certain implications but understanding and like uh, going back to like qualitative analyses like actually talking to the people that perform these jobs and just seeing those sort of insights come to life is like absolutely wonderful
2: Yeah, agree. There's no greater feeling when you provide an insight and then people actually bring it forward to the business and you see it making making an impact.
1: Oh, yeah. What's the biggest misconception about your job, Scott?
0: Sometimes people think that I can do more than uh, I think is than the data will allow or I'm capable of. Like I do a bunch of network analysis and people like, "Ooh, so you can see like who I was emailing it like, you know, midnight on you know february 3rd like it's like i could i don't have the fucking time to do that <laughs> or the interest in doing that but <laughs> and actually now i can't even do it it's all obfuscated anyway like yeah i i don't have that sort of energy to get into it uh we can do a lot but there's like certain certain sort of aspects that we just can't approach what about you man
1: the biggest misconception i don't even know this is about my job it's probably just about me is that i remember stuff Like I talk to so many people, they're like, oh, yeah, when the next time you hear about an open job, tell me about it. And I forget immediately after the call is over. Like, yeah, somebody (laughs) the other day told me they were looking for a job on your team. I can't remember who it is. (laughs) I know this is unhelpful. I'm sorry.
0: Have y'all ever done like a uh, quote unquote like ride along with an employee, like sit by them, like watch them do their job? Yeah, those are fun. Have you ever done that? I, I famously did a police ride-along in New Orleans to develop the uh, NOPD selection instrument. And boy, that's some wild stuff. Wild, wild stuff. Like, uh, rode around in uh, the French Quarter. And,
1: and live to tell the tale.
0: <laughs> barely. Like, I have much respect for the cops. Just because, like, it was at the, like, earliest time that I could, like you know reasonably get out of this situation i was like i'm out it's like 10 o'clock i have you till midnight but i am so out of here this is so scary At a previous
1: employer i got to stock the shelves at grocery stores that was kind of interesting
0: <laughs> they just put you to work
1: Wait, was it like and it was like 2 a.m in the morning so the shift oh. started from 2 a.m through like i think it was 9 a.m and that was brutal man Oh, that's
2: crazy. yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting when you do that because it, if you think about it from a data flow perspective, it's you kind of understand how some of those little nuances happen when you're actually doing that right along or or doing the job yourself,, so.
0: uh, you want to move into that nerdery?
1: Let's do some nerdery. Do you want to talk about the the Sherm article, Scott?
0: Sherm, sure, absolutely. So this article is entitled uh, Sherm Research." People are like still in the early stages. Uh, it's a really short article, but uh, essentially they go through some of the data. And uh, according to the, what they found, 58% of only 58% of organizations are making data-driven decisions, which was alluded to earlier. Uh, 19% uses causal models, which we could debate causal models, whether they're actually causal. Um, most people on these functions are limited to dashboards, which are have limited utility, not, not dashboards in general, but the ones that they're referring to anyway, most people on functions are limited to uh, turnover and recruiting sort of exercises, which kind of move the needle with the business, but you know, not some more uh, extravagant issues. There's data access issues, which we talked about earlier and uh, uh, AI is still needs to be implemented, but uh, I got some more points on this, but how do you guys feel about this? Uh,
1: yeah, let, let me jump in here because I, I thought the article, I thought the points made in the article missed the point altogether. And so they, basically the thesis of the article is people analytics is still in an early stage. And I actually just don't agree with that. It's not really anymore. I think that what they point out is the limitations for demand in people analytics. Yeah. So people just want dashboards on hiring data, dashboards on turnover dashboards on pay equity and that type of stuff. But what what you run into when you're leading a people analytics function, I'd be really curious to get your, your perspectives on this is creating solutions to problems that other people don't see as a problem. Right. And so no one's asking for causal models. So it's no surprise that causal models aren't showing up on a lot of
0: teams. So you're no, getting like it, just like a pure misalignment to the business objectives?
1: There is. That is absolutely correct. And the thing is, I think what people analytics often does, it's mm. not at an early stage anymore, but what it does is it, it either does one of two things in my perspective. It misdiagnoses a problem and, and solves for the misdiagnosis or B, <laughs> it, it, it actually solves a real problem, but the stakeholders who are in charge of fixing that problem don't want to hear about it they don't want to hear about the results that you came up with. And therefore your work ends up being wasted just because they didn't want to hear the results in the first
0: place.
2: Well, I was going to say, that's why I think it kind of goes back to having, you know, putting yourself out there and talking to people and that business alignment. So without that piece, then it's a bit tail wagging the dog. And yeah, you can present something, you know, that no one's really asking questions about. And I feel like that is a big problem where we do have, certain products or dashboards where they're just answering questions that no one is asking. Mm. And I believe in keeping things simple and then focusing on those specific areas where people are going to actually drive action.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Like uh, spinning up problems and then creating some sort of dashboard or other sort of model to solve them where, um, you know, it's not actually useful to the business. The thing that I perseverated on in this article is they said that uh going into AI, they said that uh 19% of uh the group, I guess I guess their sample group, was confident that AI driven people analytics was going to eliminate bias. And another 70% were uh confident, uh, somewhat confident, which that's 89% of people like are confident that AI is gonna eliminate bias.
1: What it says is eighty nine percent of people don't know what they're talking about,
0: <laughs> and and they
1: they I, have magical thinking in mind. Oh, AI <laughs> that means magic, right?
0: Yeah, it, that that I, I just got stuck there. The, the, the adage garbage in, garbage out, but it's beyond that because like now you're feeding in the outputs of your model, uh, back into your dataset, and and like what what kind of bias are we talking about? I, I assume they're talking about ethnic or gender bias, but there's all sorts of no, other like, biases out there.
1: I think we talked about this on the pod before, where people lump in this term bias when they have. There's like over 120 cognitive biases, and that's just one type of bias. And so they use it as like this catch-all word. Yeah. Where it's like I don't even know what it means anymore because people use it as I don't even know, like maybe like coded language, <laughs> where like what what I really mean is something else, but I'm just going to say bias. It's like no, tell me what type of bias you're <laughs> talking about.
0: This is why we need a repertory
2: grid. Oh, yeah. Hey, she did it. She brought it back. Well done. <laughs>
0: or, or like the term discrimination, like in the psychometric terms. Wonderful. You want the best discrimination. And you want bias towards the best workers or whatever your model is trying to answer.
1: Exactly. Exactly it. Well, I, I had one, um, one article sort of related to your point you just made about wanting to bias and kind of a positive direction Scott <laughs> um and it's from somebody that we've 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 talked about their articles a few times on the podcast Dr. John Sullivan who is still thwarting my reach out efforts but that's another conversation for another day The it- the article's titled opposition research improves employer branding recruiting and retention and so talk about topics that you don't hear about very much in people analytics let's talk about opposition research which i think is mostly, I guess, associated with like politics where, you know, one party will research bad things about the other party. But what they talked about is, you know, most of people analytics is focused on just trying to figure out like your own employer value proposition. Like what do we offer? What's the good things about us? What's the bad things about us? And how can we mitigate the bad things? What the author is talking about is you're missing half of the equation, which is where do you stand in comparison to the people you're competing against? And do you even know some of the key facts about their strengths and weaknesses? And then once you know that information through multi methods that, that, that people use to get that type of information, can you do, use that data to better construct an employee value proposition that will you know retain, develop, and recruit and attract people to want to work at your organization? I thought it was very intriguing. And again, another topic that you don't hear talked about very much mm. in people analytics. What are what are your reactions to this?
2: Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. And so one of the things that I kind of first landed on is how powerful that would be if you use it in conjunction with something like geotargeting or geofencing. So let's say, you know, back in the days when we all went into the office every day, if you knew that there was a certain competitor who was kind of scoring low when it came to certain cultural aspects or work-life bias could or balance, could you target ads to passive candidates that highlight some of those benefits in your own organization?
0: I had a viscerally negative reaction to this article. Really? Let's yeah. talk about it. I, I, okay. I understand the practicalities of like recruiters needing to score candidates. You need BIS, right? But this, this like competitor focused nature lets me feel an icky man. Focus on really? your own. Yeah. Focus on your own organization. Make your own organization as kick ass as possible. Is It's not a, just think about like the ASA model. Associate with this, so you're mm-hmm. essentially telling your the recruits coming in like, "Hey, this competitor's shit. Don't go there because we're we're better than they are." You you're essentially cultivating a uh, comparison culture, a group of employees that are always looking out for another offer. This sort of thing, and it, hey, unless you want that kind of culture, there are certain sort of organizations that do need turnover and this sort of thing. But yeah, overall, just. I, I just I just don't like the overall feel of it. I, I think that organizations should just try to do the best that they can to make their organizations as good as possible. Yeah. Do you I, mind I if I take like the it. other side of it really quick? You, you should um, not do that. <laughs> I should no, of, okay. of course, of course. Well, let me Dang let
1: it. me research you, my opposition. No, I'm kidding. The, the way I really look at it. And, and again, I think there's a non charitable reading to it, obviously. And I think, you know, I don't want to be bringing what they're doing, like negative stuff from politics into the workplace that seems like baloney but I see it as like blind spot mitigation. You don't Mm. even know, like we're, if we're only, you know, think about like apples and oranges. Well, if we're only focusing on ourselves we're saying, well, how how good are our apples? But maybe somebody else is doing orangish behavior and we don't even know, like it could be good, it could be bad. And the other thing is, I mean, especially if you're working for organizations that are recruiting very sought after talent. So it could be you know computer scientists could be mba graduates it could be whatever it may be well oftentimes you really want to know where you stack up in the ranking of like trying to get those people in comparison to your peers it doesn't necessarily have to lead to a comparison based culture but if you're not doing the research you may not know and you may lose a significant portion of people that you otherwise could have gotten if you weren't ignorant to it
0: absolutely absolutely i i get the point of <clears throat> Under uh, understanding where you can improve your organization by looking at competitors, but the way that this reads is like, they're pointing out the negatives of the, of the organization and why you should not go there.
1: Well, I think that's why I kind of want to talk to this guy, because he, if you read his articles, they always have an edge to them, and I'm like, hmm, oh. let, me, let me learn about this edge that you've got over here. What's, what's going on here? What's this itch you're trying to scratch?
0: <laughs> have y'all ever been in a situation where like a... Uh... Or, because like essentially said, like, oh, don't go over there, you need to go here. Oh, yeah, happens all the time. That's what I'm saying. It, it's from a practical standpoint, it's kind of got to happen. But, yeah, like reading it on paper from like a
2: cultural perspective, boy, it just feels icky as heck to me. But I feel like you can blend the two things, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be ops research to trash the competitor, but you can highlight the things that make your company great.
0: There, there's a story, I think it's not bayheim a basketball coach from from unlv i can't remember his name famous coach but essentially he went to a recruits house and like he's like trying to recruit him to unlv and the recruit said well like i got an offer from stanford and he's like sitting there in the living room he's like oh hell go to stanford Go there. (laughs) that's good that's good opposition research
1: (laughs) what do scott do we have uh one more article to talk about, and I think you might have a surprise for yeah, us.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like, well, I have another one that we could put in our back pocket if you want to talk about it here in a moment. But uh I found this really cool. So back around the turn of the year, Shopify hit uh, peak meeting misery during the pandemic, right? They recognize they're having so many meetings. I think we all kind of empathize with the sort of meeting overload. And so to mitigate this, they deleted all uh, uh, reoccurring meetings with three or more people, deleted needless Slack channels, uh, no meeting Wednesdays were instituted, and a limited window for large meetings with more than 50 people. But I found this like a cool tweet. They've taken it even further. Uh, They now have this tool that for every meeting, and I'll try and hold it up here, for every meeting that shows you the cost of that meeting based on the attendees that are in the meeting. So this particular meeting has five, six people, estimated cost uh, $2,100 to hold that meeting. Just like another way to discourage meeting bloat. Oh, I love this. Yeah,
1: And the the reason why I love, I mean, I think people have talked about this for years, you know, what is the cost of all of our meetings, but Shopify is actually doing something about it. But here's the other thing. People talk all the time. Like, let's say you're buying a new piece of software for your company or something, right? Or just anything new, like a new desk, a new standy chair, whatever it may be. And people will criticize it up one side and down the other (laughs) because they're like, well, that's going to be $5,000. Where are we going to get that money from? And I was like, the meeting we just had cost us (laughs) (laughs) $5,000 and nobody batted an eye at having that meeting. Why is it that we can't invest in things that would actually make our employees better, our company better when we're investing and we just don't think about it in those terms, but we're investing in all these crappy meetings.
0: Hidden cost, hidden cost, right?
1: Sunk cost too, because you already kind of paid their salary.
0: I've done this before, like sit around in a meeting, just kind of like, you know, estimate everyone's kind of salary be like, okay, what would be like the hourly rate or this meeting that's so pointless?
1: Well, I have a question that's kind of related to that point, which is, I was thinking about this recently. (laughs) I've been thinking about the concept of performance and, you know, you're not during, like, let's say you work eight hours a day, right? It's not like you work at a consistent performance level for eight hours straight. There's peaks, and there's valleys, right? And I'm wondering from like a people analytics perspective, should we just be focusing more on the peaks? because that's really only the only times where performance is happening. Like if you're just sitting in a meeting and there's ten people there and one person talks eighty percent of the time and yeah. the other you know nine people talk for twenty percent of the time, that's a valley, <laughs> right? but what what does you know looking at those peaks, like, how could we better measure that and then quantify the value of someone's performance over time? Have you thought about this at all?
0: think performance is essentially how we hire people. Say like a tech interview, you know, like, can you code XYZ in this sort of time and you sort of like work sample sort of issues. But you're you're totally right. Like no one works diligently for eight hours every day. Which is kind of like the Shopify model, also. Like, Mm -hmm. because like you can come off a meeting, it takes you what, 10, 15 minutes just to like kind of come out of it. It takes you like the first couple of minutes just to warm up to it. And then, like, say you're in a technical role and uh, you need to code or get into some sort of like heavy duty problem solving. Well, if you got the worst is like a 30 minute meeting at 30 minute intervals, right? You're not getting anything done that day. So they're, they're trying to eliminate these sort of things.
1: Well, let me build on this, because I know this is something that you've hit on before, Scott, and some of our previous guests like Arena and Rob Cross have said before, is what if, like, peak performance really only happens in focus time, right? Mm-hmm. In the focus time that you have. And so what if, and like focus time is like the antithesis of these wasted meetings, right? Right. So what funny. if we were incentivizing people more based on the amount of high productivity focus time they were having? That seems to me to fund would fundamentally break some of this meeting heavy culture that we have
0: incentivize people to <laughs> get into this like flow state. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. I mean, like, like what if it was, cause you have all these tools now that are like tracking how much focus time people have in their jobs. Like, what if it was like, Hey, you had zero focus time this week. <laughs> this was a wasted week for our company for your performance. <laughs> Next week, I need you to have at least two hours of focus time a day. And, you know, like that's the kind of things I'm, th- I'm not saying it has to be exactly how I'm describing it, but I don't even see anybody proposing this type of thing.
2: Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think one of, um, you know, what sort of is pinging for me is looking at that in the context of working asynchronously and just Mm -hmm. having that flexibility to get into flow, because as much as I think, you know, organizations would love the idea of people getting into this focused state, the reality is that we are in a very meeting heavy culture. So are they going to change the behaviors that are going to support that? Or are they going to allow employees to have more flexibility to sort of work different hours, the hours that they need to get into that focused state?
0: I would imagine that they would in this case, right? Like you're saying, like, you're not going to be meeting heavy, this sort of thing. And like, let's, let's, meetings are not work either. Like, th- there's nothing really accomplished in a meeting. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of people, you know, throughout my career say like, well, you know, what'd you accomplish? Like, well, well, I met with Bob. I met with Sue. I met with, it's like, that ain't fucking work. That's what the action items that come out of that. That's the work.
1: The thing I think about is... How are you going to prove that what you do matters? Like, I, I want to get out of this cycle of having a meeting, yeah. talk about the meeting that's coming up, and then so that we can have a good meeting when we debrief the meeting, right? Meetings for meeting, Like, it oh, almost I even gets that. existential at times where it's like, is my whole life meant to be on Zoom calls? Like, is this my purpose for my existence? Like, I mean, it's really, like, affecting is, is that our, our lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially with present. They-
0: we have a lot more like Gen AI or hell, even robotics. Who knows?
1: It's like, what if, you know, everybody took a Shopify approach and I think, I can't remember what it is. I think it maybe is Wednesday. I think they just don't allow meetings on Wednesdays. And so Shopify, everybody yes. has, has a focused day. Like the whole company has a focused day on Wednesdays. Imagine how much more productive the whole company is by not having meetings that day.
2: I was thinking, you know, especially with hybrid work, that's you know, how they encourage us to sort of structure our work week is you know those work from home days use those as focus time. When you're in the office collaborative time, but does that always work out, and I think that's where it requires a lot of cultural change management to get there and just how many companies are actually going to be willing to make that investment.
0: If I could just get an agenda on every meeting, like, well, what are we talking about? There's nothing like a meeting being scheduled like three weeks out, and like you click on it, like, what is this today? And it's just like, well, you're gonna meet with Sue. (laughs) It's like, what? What What is this about? I'm I'm going in this cold. It's gonna take ten minutes just to warm up to whatever the heck we're talking about.
2: Forwarded a meeting, and you're like, I've had that happen where I just get it pulled into meetings. I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I was invited.
1: I don't know if the right term is "ghosted" by it, but it's like you know, blindsided by it is probably the right term. I mean, if I have a meeting three weeks out with Nicole, I'm I'm really happy if there's no agenda. That to me, (laughs) it's like an artistic painting. We get to paint the conversation Uh, of our meeting together.
0: Embrace the ambiguity. (laughs) Just go for
1: whatever you want. (laughs) Absolutely. Let me circle back to something real quick, Nicole. You mentioned to me before the podcast that you. And your daughter have the same birthday oh yeah my true? son
2: my son yeah so it was a bit of a surprise because so the funny story is that he was actually due on March 14th and he decided to show up you know, a few weeks early. My husband was actually in South Carolina at a training and he had to drive 13 hours straight because I was going into labor. And I was like, if you are not here by the time this boy arrives, then, you know, this is going to be a tremendous problem, <laughs> but he got there on time and we were, you know, it was the day before my birthday and then we just sort of started counting down the hours. Then he was oh, born no. a few hours after midnight. So it was, it was really cool.
1: You know, this, this always makes me think about those like brain teaser questions. They ask, like, if you went to a party, how, what is the, what are the odds that somebody else at that party has the same birthday that you have? Right. And it's like, what are the odds that you and your child have the same birthday? I would think it would be one in 365, but I actually think that that's the wrong answer. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys know the answer to these type of things? Because this is where, you know, people talk about probability versus odds and always get confused at the difference. I know we talked about it with Keith Keith McNulty a while back, but I don't know. Do you Uh, know the answer to that?
0: I want to say the statistic I've heard that you share a birthday with any other person is like one in 42, something like that. Very much lower than one in 365. Yeah. Like why? I don't know. Okay, you you eliminate certain things like I guess doctors don't want to deliver on like New Year's Eve or Christmas Day if they don't have to. Obviously, like Nicole's son made an appearance.
1: I don't know. I I I don't think it's up to doctors' schedules as to why the odds are the way they are. But I think these are things that you know sci- science science has yet to discover. They're unknowable. You know, like there's uh, other factors
0: like, too, like biological. Like maybe people go out on New Year's Eve and. September comes around,
2: baby boom.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I remember they were
1: talking about when COVID first happened that there was a baby boom right after that because everybody came, oh, yeah, staying together in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, well, this is the point where we've officially unraveled (laughs) and we're talking about baby booms. So, uh, Nicole, you were amazing, and honestly, in terms of educational value, I've learned a lot through today's podcast, and so. Well done! Thank you so much for being our guest, Scott. Any any parting words for Nicole before we give Nicole the final word?
0: Nicole, absolutely wonderful to meet you. Great insights around these like cool techniques and uh, just learning about you in general. Thanks yeah. for coming on.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a really good time.
1: Awesome. Well, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott and Nicole Letich. Thanks for joining us, Nicole.
2: Thank you.
0: As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, the People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott.